Well, today's sermon is titled, God's Triumph of Grace Over Our Failure, Part 3. <laughs> uh, you may be wondering, how many parts will there be? Well, the answer is there's going to be four. Parts 1 and 2, that was last year. Um, it was a section, a long section in the book of Isaiah, uh, where God spoke to his people in the southern kingdom. Remember Judah? Today's passage comes from another long section where God turns his attention to the more rebellious northern kingdom, Israel, uh, often referred to as Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, and, and so don't get confused with all the different names, but we're going to divide this larger section into two manageable sermons, parts three and four. So today, it'd be good if you have your Bibles, if you brought them from home, that's a great thing. If not, we have a pew Bible for you. On um, page 573, 573, uh, we're going to look at Isaiah 9, 8 through 10, 15. Now, uh, today's sermon could perhaps be one of the most important sermons in your life. Today, we're going to wrestle with the very important characteristic of God, the anger of God, also called the wrath of God. Now, see, I've lost some of you already, right? Many people hear that God experiences anger and they reject such a, a notion. Ironically, they get angry when you say that God gets angry. Go figure. Many today insist that since God is love, he doesn't get angry, which is nonsense. See, if God is love, he must get angered at times. Try to picture yourself as an eight-year-old kid again. <laughs> And you're walking home from school, and when a bully beats you up and knocks out your front teeth, you come home and your dad greets you at the front door. Now, what is the loving response from your father? To ignore what happened? No, love is not indifferent to sin. So no, what you expect from your father who loves you is a number of emotions, compassion, concern, comfort, and yes, of course, anger. See, the more your father loves you, the more he'll be angered by the sins committed against you, and the more he will fight for justice on your behalf, right? Now, if this makes complete sense for us human beings, then why on earth do we expect something different from God? If you can get angry for right reasons, how much more so God, who is our perfect creator? It is because God is love that he expresses anger and wrath. And let this sink in. It's going to be a challenging thought. Since the greatest love is found in God, so too the greatest anger. It rubs us wrong, but it has to be true. Ray Ortland Jr. puts it this way. God, the most loving person in the Bible, is also the angriest person in the Bible. Let me repeat that. God, the most loving person in the Bible, is also the angriest person in the Bible. Now, if that doesn't sit well with you, chances are, even if you're a Christian, it might not sit well with you, then there's things we need to learn. Think about it. The more you love someone, the more, not less, you become angry when someone hurts them, right? But think this through also. The more you love someone, the angrier you get when they turn on you. Think about it. When a stranger stabs you in the back, you say, that's life, no biggie. But when a good friend that you love for years stabs you in the back, 
you say what? That really hurts. And you become more angry than if by a stranger. You think of all the ways that you've loved and blessed them, all the good times that you've shared together in life, and they stab you in the back, and it rightly angers you deeply. Now take this understanding and apply it to God and to his people, for that is what God's people has done in this text. You get it? God had chosen them to be his, their, his covenant people. He rescued them out of Egypt with an outstretched arm. He delivered them into the glorious promised land. He pledged to care for them and to protect them, to fight their very battles. But the people stabbed their Lord in the back, and he is rightly angered. God is never wrongly angered. He is never unhinged like God. When God is angry, he is always right. He's in the right when he is angry. But humans, we get anger wrong. And so we can foolishly think that God must get anger wrong. How do we get anger wrong? Think about it. Sometimes we don't get angry when we should. We turn a blind eye. But thankfully, God does not. Or sometimes we do get angry, but we get angry for the wrong reasons, right? Think about it. Like someone else gets elected to student council over you, and you're angry at them for getting what you wanted. Thankfully, God does not get angry for the wrong reasons. Or sometimes we do get angry over something we should be angry over. But what do we do? We take our anger too far. Every parent has done this, sadly. Your child disobeys or does something wrong, but you overly punish them. Or you speak to them too harshly. I cannot tell you, sadly, how many times I've done this in my own family. For my children's sake, I wish it was not true, but sadly it is. All this to say, we do not do anger well, but God does. God does not fly off the rails for no reason. In the Bible, he is never unhinged. In fact, his nature is that of being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That is his nature. And so when God is angry, we must know that he is angered for the right reasons and that his anger is not blown out of proportion. And so if we find ourselves judging God as being too angry, I think we need to check ourselves. Either we fail to comprehend how much God loves or we fail to see just how sinful we humans are or likely both. Now, that's a long intro, isn't it? <laughs> but it's important to understand God's love and God's anger. And my belief is that as we sit under Isaiah's words here, um, and you allow yourself to be challenged, then the logic of it will all come real to you. And, the, and more than that, the grace of God that we see here becomes far more what? Colorful and nuanced and humbling in your life. Today's sermon is titled, God's Triumph of Grace Over Our Failure, Part 3. We won't see a lot of grace or triumph 
in this text that will come next week in parts four, where our main points will be grace and triumph. Today, our two main headings are decision and judgment. You're taking notes. I will read the text for this first part, and then I'll read the rest of the text under the last heading. So, Isaiah 9, verse 8, uh, through chapter 10, verse 4. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out. He will, he will write this three more times in our text. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray. And those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and he has no compassion on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it, it kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord, the host, uh, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment? in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Pray. Father, we are so confused at times. We're more led by our emotions than we are by fact. And the fact is, you love us more than we can comprehend. 
and you're also more angered at the sin of this world than we are, and we should repent of that. Help us to understand you more rightly in this very hour. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you will give life to these words, um, that you'll give life to our minds and our hearts. We pray for this through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This first section I read speaks of a decision. The Lord asks in verse 3 of chapter 10, What will you do on the day of judgment? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? These are all decision questions, right? Isaiah shows us that if God's people choose evil, then God's wrath works with unrelenting force. Now, before we go too far, what is wrath? I know that's not a word we like. And what does God being angry and wrathful say about him and about us and about this world? One of my uh, visiting seminary professors, uh, it was Ray Ortland Jr. He was my professor for this very book of Isaiah. I learned so much from him. Yes, he's the father of Dane Ortland, who wrote that amazing book, a number you've read, Gentle and Lowly. I'm friends with Dane. I graduated seminary with him. I'm deeply indebted to Ray's teaching on Isaiah, especially this week. I was sick all week. I'm feeling better. But here we go. Ray Ortland writes, What is the wrath of God? His wrath, listen in, his wrath is his active, resolute opposition to all evil. That sounds good. (laughs) We want that. God's delight, think of that, God's delight is spontaneous and intrinsic to his being, but his wrath is provoked by the defiance of his creatures. That's where it gets us. God's love will never make peace with our evil. What we must understand is that God's wrath is perfect, no less than, he's quoting Romans 2 here, the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. And his wrath is not moody vindictiveness. It is the solemn determination of a doctor cutting away the cancer that's killing his patient. And for God, the anger is personal, not detached and clinical. The doctor hates the cancer because he loves the carriers of the disease, and he will rid the universe of all their afflictions. The prophet Isaiah uses strong words, anger and wrath, to show God to us. The prophet finds these very human images helpful in describing the perfect passion burning in the heart of God to defeat evil and to bring us into the triumph of his grace. But there's a decision. If God's people choose evil, then his wrath works with unrelenting force. First, Isaiah shows us that pride leads to Humiliation, not humility, humiliation. This is when it's all rubbed in your face, right? In verses 8 through 12, Isaiah identifies Israel's basic problem in this phrase. Here's what he says. Who say in pride and in arrogance of heart. Well, what do they say in pride and arrogance of heart? Well, verse 10. 
The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Right? It's like, uh, you know, they've, they've destroyed the Farmica countertops, but, you know, we will put in, what is the good countertops now? I don't know. Uh, what's that? Granite. Yes. We're, even though bad things have happened to us, just watch us. We're going to have granite everywhere. Marble even. All right. Israel has come under military attack. And so bricks have fallen and sycamores have been cut down. People are thinking, they're thinking through the meaning of this adversity. I mean, it's like they're laughing it off. They believe they'll be back on their feet soon enough. And guess what? Things will be better than before. Instead of bricks, fine stones. Instead of lowly sycamore trees, cedars. You see, there's, there's no reflection going on. No, no humility. But because God is at work in history, all events have meaning. In fact, it is the Lord who is raising up the adversaries against his wayward people. Verse 11 and 12. But the Lord raises the adversaries. See, I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, of resin against him uh, and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. As the pride of the people rises, so God raises up adversaries. This reveals the truth about God we must embrace. God opposes the proud, but what gives grace to the humble. So God's anger falls on Israel because of their pride. Also, his anger falls on them because of their what? Lack of repentance. We witness this in verse 13. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. My friends, it's a prideful belief to think God would never strike you. And it is impenitent response when God strikes you and you turn away from him instead of turning to him and inquiring of him. You know, too many Christians in America think that because they attend church three out of four Sundays that, that God owes them a decent life. Add to this, they never in a million years would think that God would bring affliction into their lives in order to correct them. This is to take God's grace in vain. God wants our obedience along with our reception of his grace. God does bring affliction in order to correct us. Is this not what good shepherds do? Does not King David in Psalm 23 rejoice? Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The shepherd's rod was used for two purposes. One was to fight off predators and the other was to inflict pain upon the wayward sheep. And King David says, God's rod comforts him. It should comfort us to know that God will not let us be disobedient too long. Though we've been forgiven, our sin still angers him. Christian, we must know that though God's wrath towards us 
was poured out on his son Jesus on the cross, we must know that as God's children, he disciplines us. And I don't know about you, but sadly, I need pain from God at times to be humbled so that I turn towards God and experience his compassion and his grace and his restoration. Thirdly, we see that this pride and impenitence leads to self-destruction. We see this is in verse 18 through 21. Isaiah poetically describes the inherently destructive power of sin. What do I mean? Well, when we sin, it hurts other people and they hurt us. It's destructive. Verse 18, for wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. Verse 19, through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. What is Isaiah saying here? He's saying what we know to be true. We human beings consume each other. We don't like to think of ourselves that way, but we do. Every time we fail to forgive somebody, every time our day is all about us, every time we hoard what could be and should be shared, we're like a fire that burns society. That was what was taking place in Israel with great magnitude. The people were consuming each other and themselves. Isaiah shows us that in verse 20. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Or as our scripture says elsewhere, you reap what you sow. Lastly, Isaiah in, in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, we see how injustice leads to helplessness. Isaiah envisions the corrupt elite in Israel huddling as prisoners of war or being tossed into a giant heap of dead bodies as in fact actually happened when Assyria overran Israel in 722 BC. Look at verse 4. Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. And then the phrase, for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Did you notice four times in our text, Isaiah summarizes the preceding phrase, uh, paragraph with the phrase, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Listen, what does this mean? This means that you and I will never wear God down until he relents and we get our own way. It's not going to happen. In Almighty God, we have met our match. So whom should we fear? And to whom should we curry favor? We tend to fear other human beings, right? What they think of us, we walk through our schools, all nervous, what does so-and-so think or say? Let me curry their favor. This is all wrong, my friends. There is a God in heaven who loves you more than they ever will. He is, his wrath, not theirs, is what we should fear. And it is his favor, not theirs, that we should cherish. 
So much in life would be so different if we would just live that out. That is a decision. It was before ancient Israel back then, and it's also before us this very day. So let us not be prideful. Let us not be impenitent. But let us, with wisdom and humility, seek to love and honor our Heavenly Father. That's the decision. Now, the second part is the judgment. We see it in chapter 10, verses 5 through 15. Let me read that now. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Karshemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Not iPad, Arpad. Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols if I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have, un for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples, and I plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or church chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. All right, what does this say? I can tell you this, Isaiah is one of the best um, writers, poets of all time. His words might not be totally clear to us, so let's put some, let's put some uh, flesh on these bones here, so to speak. This is the judgment, right? The main point of this section is the ultimacy of God, or his supremacy, better word perhaps, God's sovereignty. God stands above everything. This comes to a head in verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Isaiah is saying that the mighty nation of Assyria, which attacked the northern kingdom, was a tool in God's hands. And they didn't even know. 
This is one of the most important passages in the Bible on the sovereignty of God. Ortland writes, what is the sovereignty of God? You see, um, you were asking that. It is God's ultimacy as king of the universe. It is his glorious throne from which he rules all things in unfrustrated supremacy. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Isaiah loved the supremacy of God, but the nation God used as a disciplinary rod in his hand was itself an evil nation. In verse 6, Isaiah describes how God does use godless people to discipline his own covenant people. Here's verse 6, against a godless nation, I send him, that's Assyria, the king, and against the people of my wrath, I command him. God sends Assyria against a godless nation. Who is the godless nation? It's Israel. Now the readers in Isaiah's day would have said, we are not a godless nation. We have God after all. Assyria is the godless nation. Ancient Israel did not understand what we must understand. The truth that belonging to God's covenant people does not protect us from his discipline. Rather, what? It makes us more accountable to obey the Lord. But if we refuse, we are in practical terms living as if we are, quote, godless. Ortland says God is able to use godless worldly powers to discipline his godless covenant people. And he's good for doing that. And human oppressors don't even have to be aware of God to be useful for God's purifying purposes. That, my friends, is the sovereignty of God, his unrivaled kingship over all things. Assyria thinks they're purely acting for their own corrupt purposes. That is what verse 7 means. But he, Assyria, does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. Assyria is not thinking that it's doing God's bidding. They're just doing what evil empires have always done. Ransack, pillage, kill, take away. Look at the second part of verse 7. But it is in the heart, Assyria's heart, to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. Forrest Gump might summarize Isaiah as, Evil is as evil does. And the king of Assyria and all of his eager followers believed themselves to be acting alone. But it was God's outstretched hand that was moving them. Amazing, right? Is your conception of God that big? So Isaiah sees two sovereignties at work in the world. The sovereignty of man, that's us doing our own little things, building our own little kingdoms on earth, you know, going to work and raising families. And then there's the greater family, uh, the sovereignty of God himself. And God's domain is able to use man's domain, whether man wants it that way or not. In other words, he's a big God. Now, it's possible to wrongly conclude that because God uses godless people to bring about his purposes, that God must approve their corrupt lives, right? 
Isaiah shows us, though, that being used by God does not exempt anyone from humility before God. Yes, God uses Assyria to conquer Israel in 722 BC, but Isaiah writes in verse 12 that God will hold every useful villain accountable. Verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that's the discipline he's doing, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eye. God had appointed a day within history when Assyria would be judged rightly. And guess what? That's happened. They were judged. But God has also appointed a day in the future when a final judgment over all things will be brought about. On that day, all those who in pridefulness and arrogance say, I don't need God in my life, will get what they wish for all eternity, God out of their life. But for all those who in, who in humility and repentance turn to God, and like Isaiah in chapter 6 say, woe is me, they will experience mercy, a mercy that they do not deserve, and they will be welcomed into heaven by the triumph of God's grace over their failure. This needed humility is seen in the last verse in our text. It's in the form of a question. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? Right? Well, nobody uses like axes today. Chainsaws. Uh, last week, Nate and I cut down a tree in my yard. Nate's a, he's good with this chainsaw. It only took him two to cut down my tree. But that chainsaw did not control Nate. Both cha no chainsaws were hurt in that uh, cutting down of the tree. But Nate owned the chainsaw. The chainsaw did not own Nate. That's what he's saying here. It's folly for created things like axes and saws to believe themselves greater than the person who uses them. So too it is folly for us to live this way towards God. Listen, it matters not whether you love God and delight in him or you are a rebel against him. You are a tool in his sovereign hands. Do you see that? It's a delight to be a tool in God's hands for good. It's a horrible thing to be a tool in his hand for evil. What kind of tool will you be? Rebellious or reasonable? But notice also the grace in God's words. You're like, yes, finally, we get that. Well, you really have to dig for it in this text. Verse 15, it's a question. God wants to reason with you, okay? God is willing to condescend, to come down to you, to talk to you. And what he's saying is, shall you boast over me? Let's get that straight. Shall you really live a life that boasts over me? I like what Ortland writes here. God is no cardboard cutout. He is a real person with real anger and real love. He has wonderful things to talk to us about. His grace can recover everything we failed to be. But he will not negotiate with our self-exaltation. 
as we struggle against him. Our relationship with God is a dramatic engagement, something like a, about a fencing, right? With this succession of back and forth attacks. God may walk up to you at some point and punch you right in the nose and knock you flat. And as you're sitting there on the ground wondering, what was that all about? He might kick you in the teeth. Think of Job. But why? Why does God blindside us at times? Because the only way we will listen is the hard way. Now it's making sense. He would rather lead us gently beside still waters, but he will not settle for polite religious unreality with us. How are we to respond to what we've looked at today? First, in humility. The brilliant Christian scholar and author G.K. Chesterton once read a piece in a London newspaper which asked, what is wrong with the world? And Chesterton wrote a letter to the editor which read something on the lines of, with regards to your question, what is wrong with the world? I am. Do you agree with Chesterton that you are part of the problem in this world? Most people point to others and blame. It's them, not me. If the world were just full of people like me, it would be great. Don't be so sure of yourself. Which is why Voltaire's words ring so true. No snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. There is a reason why the Bible says that God gives grace to the humble. So we must first respond in humility. And then what? In repentance. If it is true that it is right and good for God to be angry at sin, right? And if we in humility acknowledge our sin, then it is right and good for us to repent and to turn from our sin and turn to Christ. The Apostle Paul writes of this triumph of God's grace over our sin in Romans chapter 5. I encourage you to write this down, maybe meditate on it this week, whether you're a Christian or not. Romans 5 verses 8 through 11. Here's what we read there. Romans 5, 8 through 11. But God shows his love for us in that while we, we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, that's to be declared right in God's sight. We have been justified by his blood, it's Jesus's. How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now, what's the response? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's, my friend, is what God has done. If you get hung up on his anger, you're going to miss out on his love. 
Yes, he's angered at us, at our sin, but he's willing to forgive it. Not by us, like saying, I'll be better next week. No, by putting your sin on his own son. So, in humility and in repentance, we turn to Christ. And then we see that that God has triumphed over our failure in his own son, Jesus Christ, and in the grace that he gives us. How so? God, God sent his son to take the punishment that you deserve. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself everything that you've ever done wrong, including your tendency to think you've never done anything wrong. He's taken that upon himself. But more than that, ponder this. Yes, on the cross, Jesus took all your sin, all of it. But more than that, what else did he take for you? This is magnificent. He took, of all God, he took all God's anger towards that sin away from you and upon himself. To use the metaphor of cancer again, with love for you, God took your cancerous sin and placed it in his own divine son, Jesus, and then Jesus died from your cancer for you in your place. So how do you respond to that? If you've never trusted in Christ for the sin in your life, you can do so right now. You don't have to say some magical prayer. Just in your heart, confess your need for a Savior and give it to Christ. And then you will experience his forgiveness and welcome. Do not live another day outside of the love and grace of God. Not another day. This is not tomorrow's task. It's for today. Now, if you have trusted in Christ, be reminded you no longer stand condemned. So let us rejoice that God has triumphed over our failure by his grace. Father, there is no greater love in the universe than you. And because of this great love, you are greatly angered. But in that love, you sent your son to take our anger and lay on him. That just doesn't seem real or right. It's not something we would make up. It must be true. We delight in that truth today. Help us to be your people who are aware of what's going on in this world. May us not think lightly of the troubles that befall us. May we turn to you and ask, why? Is there something you want to change in us? Is there some sin I need stripped away? We, we, we hold this, this desire in our hearts right now as we come before the Lord's table. We desire you to strip away all that is hindering your work in us. Lead us, we pray. Amen.